The, the concept for this sermon series and sort of the slogan for our year in giving is repeat the sounding joy. If you, you, know, you know the Christmas songs, you know what that's from, right? It's joy to the world. And so we wanted to, to talk about the meaning of joy to the world, but I also wanted you to, to have this idea in your mind about repeating the sounding joy, and it has to do with resonant frequency. Some of you are wondering, what's the wine cup for? It's already got like white spots on it. I put water in it because I was trying this morning to do, the, you know the thing where you, like, okay, it, it wasn't loud enough, so it wasn't cool, so I could just do like a, can, can, how, how many of you can hear that? Travels pretty well, huh? So there's a thing called resonant frequency. Uh, and it's pretty cool, and it has to do with the concept of repeating the sounding joy. And this is the image I want us to all have in, in our mind. So every object, I mean every object, has a natural frequency. A natural frequency is what this object wants to vibrate at. So for instance, a middle C on a piano vibrates 262 times a second. When you have a string pulled to a certain tightness and it's composed of certain composition, the middle C of the piano wants to vibrate at 262 times a second. So you pluck it, that string's actually vibrating 262 times a second, and that vibration is what's picked up in your ear, and it's a big, long process. There's neurotransmitters that pick it up and translate it to, to sound in your brain. But it's 262 times a second. And every object, like this object, has a natural frequency, the frequency it wants to, to vibrate at. And so if you hit it, you hear the... It's a, it's a note on a piano somewhere. Well, it's probably not in tune, but you hear that. What resonant frequency is, it's, it's a crazy concept, but if we were to have another wine glass next to this wine glass, and it's an exact copy, an exact copy, as I hit this and it vibrates at, let's say this vibrates 100 times a second, and you have an exact wine glass with the same natural frequency, It'll be quiet, but if you get real close, the wine glass next to the wine glass that's been tapped will also produce the same note. Because it has the name, same natural frequency, it wants to sing that same note. Now, if this object was different, it wasn't vibrating at the same frequency, it's, it's not gonna produce that, that same sound. But when things are, have resonance, they will pick up the same vibration and push it back out into the world without even plucking it. In fact, if, you know, if, we, if we wanted to get really crazy, we can hold down the middle C on the piano and we get someone who's got just can belt vocal notes and they were to sing a super loud C with like pitch perf perfect, the piano would sing the same note as if someone was plucking C. Not very loud, not with this because the vibrations, it's producing something, so, but it's still gonna pick it up and go with it. And so the idea is that 2,000 years ago, a massive shockwave, cosmic shockwave, came into our reality. And through the birth, life, and death, and resurrection of Jesus, there's this shockwave that's going out, not just physically, but throughout time. And it goes out, and when people receive the gospel, they hear the gospel, it's like the natural frequency of your soul wants to push that back out. It receives it and pushes it back out. It's as if you're designed to sing the glories of God. And when you hear the gospel message and your soul becomes alive, you begin to vibrate and sing the glories of God and it goes out. So the idea of repeating the sounding joy is that there's technically only one note it's the message of Jesus that happened 2,000 years ago, but that one gospel message gets picked up by different souls 
that gets extended and extended, and here we are today, 2,000 years later, hundreds of millions of people later, and the message is still going out. And our call is to repeat the sounding joy that was announced 2,000 years ago. Now, that's the image I want us to have all in our mind when we think about these songs and specifically joy to the world and the sermon series and the, the giving push, all of that. But I also today I wanted to briefly break down some of the lyrics that are found in joy to the world. I know some of you love this song. Some of you probably, you don't like it. That's fine. But the lyrics are awesome. You don't have to like the song, but if you come to South Valley Community Church, you've got to at least pretend to like the lyrics because they're really, really good. Um, there's a crazy line in it, though, crazy line that we sing all the time. And I don't know if you've ever stopped. I mean, got, sometimes we need to stop and say, what is this actually saying? Because if we're honest with ourselves, one of the most popular lines in the song is very difficult to believe. It's an idea, a teaching that's found in the Bible. In fact, it's found all over the place. But if you're really honest, really honest with yourself, you should have a hard time believing it. The last stanza says, he, Jesus, rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Now question, does it look like the world is being ran currently with truth and grace? More importantly, does it look as if the nations are proving the glory of God. The nations, think of all the different nations. How are, the, I mean, this is, a, this is a political statement. This is a, a, a question of sovereignty. And we sing, he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove. Are the nations currently proving the righteousness of God and does it look as if the world's being ran with truth and grace? And so that's why I say when you're honest with yourself, you kind of go, I, I don't know, maybe, you know, in my times of strong faith, I believe that, but there's certainly days it sure doesn't look like it. Now, how you wrestle with this question, how you answer this question, will absolutely shape how you see God's sovereignty, God's action in the world, how you see yourself in the world, and how you see Christianity extending out throughout time and history throughout time and, and geography, sorry, around the world. So I'm going to leave that hanging. We're going to look at the other verses and then come back to this question at the end. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. The guy who wrote this song, Isaac Watts, he's one of those dudes who are like geniuses, like they know Latin at the age of four. He's writing songs by the time he's seven. He's in university as a teenager. You know, the type of people you don't like. Um, I mean, look, he's already, look, he's looking down smugly on you already. What? You don't, you don't know Latin and you're an adult? I learned it at four. I had written 1,500 songs by the time I was 10. But I say, some of you are going to get this, some of you are not going to get it. But I say, but how many Fortnite wins did you have, bro? <laughs> what up? I care how many songs you wrote. So super genius guy, and he wrote the song, Joy to the World, based off of Psalm 98. So what he did was, <clears throat> about 90% of the psalms, he didn't get through all of them, but about 90%, he said, these are the psalms, and they are written before Jesus. Let me write new songs 
about these old songs in light of the coming of Jesus. And so it's sort of like you look at the Old Testament and you see these praise songs, but then let me, let me look at them through the lens of Jesus. <clears throat> and so what I'd like to do is read, it's not a long psalm, Psalm 98. <clears throat> so as we go through the lyrics and you sing joy to the world, hopefully here forevermore, you, you have Psalm 98 <clears throat> in your mind. Psalm 98. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sounds of horns. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and all those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the earth with righteousness and all the people with equity. Psalm 98. And if you know joy to the world, you're picking up on these. There's themes. There's like, there's a king, and this king is come, going to come to judge the world, but this judgment isn't to be feared because it's being done by a good and righteous king, and he's going to bring justice throughout the land. And because of that, we should all joyously sing his praises. And so that's where Isaac Watts picks up Psalm 98 and then writes, Joy to the world. First lines, joy to the world, the Lord has come. This is like most people, the one interesting thing about Christmas songs, like everyone knows the first three lines. And then like people who really love Christmas songs, they know the parts after. But usually watch, watch when people sing, joy to the And then by the time you get to the second verse, hills and floods, like hark the herald angel, glory to the new Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. So there's an image already probably in your mind. It's like, let earth, I mean, uh, let every heart prepare him room. And what do you think of immediately? Think of Mary, Joseph, and they're looking for a place to have baby Jesus. But there's no room anywhere. And so the question the song puts before us is like, is there room in your heart for Jesus, is there room in your life for Jesus, or is it like it was 2,000 years ago and there's no room? No room. No room here, no room here, no room at the end. And this is the pattern in Jesus' life. It's not, people not having room for Jesus and kicking him out is the pattern in Jesus' life. So it's not just when he's born. Mary and Joseph need a place, but there's no room in the end. So they have to go to a barn, manger. And then... Do, do his, does his own family receive him? No, his family doesn't receive him either. They think he's crazy. Does, does his community receive him? No, his community kicks him out of the synagogue as he's trying to teach, and they try to stone him. Does his people, do his people receive him? No, they kick him out of the city and crucify him. This is a pattern of continual rejection. There's no room in the inn, no room in the family, no room in the community, no room in the synagogue, and ultimately no room for you here in Israel. So we take you out of the city and crucify you. 
And so as you enter into this Christmas season, is there room for Jesus in your life? And the tricky thing is, is depending upon how you answer the question we started with, that, that's, that's a tricky, tricky answer. It will be complicated. The last line says, and heaven and nature sing. There's this idea in Scripture. It's, it's sort of weird for modern people to think about, but it's everywhere in Scripture. It's this idea that um, nature itself is affected by human sin. Like human rebellion, human wickedness has also put nature in some type of oppression. And so even nature, creation, longs for the redemption and reconciliation of all things. Nature wants to sing the praises of God, like the default, the default position of all creation, from like dogs to, to goats to trees, they all by nature glorify God because they do exactly what God intended them to do. It's like a tree does what it's supposed to do. Just, it doesn't even have a choice, it just does it. Human beings have the option to rebel. They don't have to glorify God. But the rest of creation sings his praises. It's a metaphor but again and again, Scripture wants to sing praises, but, I mean, nature wants to sing praises, but it's in bondage. So joy to the world says, heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men, employ their, let men their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills, plains repeat the sounding joy. So that's that resonant frequency thing. It's like the cosmos declares the glory of God. Creation declares the glory of God. But will men, will humanity... And so the song says, look, this is what you're designed to do. This is like the natural frequency of your soul. Creation does this, but will you let men, humanity, let them sing these songs and join in with the fields, floods, rocks, hills, and plains? It says the Savior reigns. One of the difficult things for us to understand for a number of reasons as modern people is the idea of the kingship of God We've talked about this in the past, but first off, as Americans, we don't like kings. We like getting rid of kings. It's like, that's what we do. We're Americans. It's like, 1776, bro. <laughs> you know, we threw off the crown type, type of thing. So, and, and we're democratic, like in everything we, we do. We always want everyone to have like a vote in types of things. And so it's very difficult for understanding that God is, God's kingdom is a monarchy, we, we want to naturally rebel against a monarchy. Now, linguistically, we also have some things holding us back because the Bible will use different words like reign. This isn't the Bible. This is a song, but it says the Savior reigns. In the Bible, you see words like rule, rules, reigns, king, kingdom. In both Greek and Hebrew, all those words that appear different in English, like rule and king, those are two different words. They're all the same word, just take different forms. So basileus in Greek becomes basileia. It goes from king to kingdom. They all sound the same, and rule and reign just sound like king. So if you were reading in Greek and Hebrew, you wouldn't see the, the word like he's ruling or he's reigning. It would be like, it would appear in your language like he's kinging, like king, I-N-G. And so the word king the root word for king appears in both Greek and Hebrew everywhere. There's a king, he has a kingdom, and he kings or he's kinging. It's everywhere. You can't escape it. Scripture wants you to see and understand God is king and he's kinging right now. King, king, king. It's all over the place. Joy to the world. Jesus, the king, is 
kinging. He's ruling and reigning. Now, just with those lyrics, you could kind of see the, the, the themes of Psalm 98 coming out. It says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done, a mar- done marvelous things. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre. Lyre is an old school instrument. We don't really rock lyres anymore. With the lyre and the sound of the melody, with trumpets and the sound of a horn, make a joyful noise before the king, the Lord. Let the sea roar. You get this? It's like nature is joining in the praises now. And all that fills it, let the world and those who dwell in it, let the rivers clap their hands. You get the imagery. The rivers, the cosmos, creation, nature is singing the praises of They're clapping. But will you join in? Or will you stand in opposition to the newly crowned king? Let the hills sing for joy together. Third verse of Joy to the World. This is, by, this is where most people don't, don't know anymore. You're for sure just... Heaven and nature sing. No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is, far as the curse is found. Now that's good. Seriously. This is beautiful poetry. It's a shame. They should have put that verse first so people know that one. This is one of the best verses in this. Okay. So the, the author is drawing all, upon all this rich biblical imagery and then injecting the work of Christ into it. So why is it that sin and sorrow is not going to grow anymore? Well, it's because the thorns won't infest the ground. And it's like, if you don't know the biblical imagery, you're like, that's kind of weird. I mean, like thorns, there's like rose bushes on the ground infesting the ground. No. Thorns symbolically stand in place for something in Scripture. Where's the first time we hear thorns mentioned in the Bible? It's Genesis. And, and what, what is, what is the, thor- the thorns representing? They're representing the curse that has happened to creation because of human rebellion. This is Genesis 3.17. Cursed is the ground because of you. This is God speaking to Adam. The ground is now cursed because of humanity's rebellion against God. And he says, because of this, in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. So when you're talking about thorns being removed, you're talking about like the curse in Genesis being removed. And then joy to the world says, let the blessings flow. Jesus has come to bring the blessings flow. And what, where is that imagery? That's also found in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 12, God chooses a guy named Abraham, and Abraham and his people are going to be the blessing people. Now, we've talked about this before, way back in our of Thorns and Crowns series, but the word blessing in English doesn't translate well what the Bible is saying here by blessing. Like when, when we use the word blessing, it's like, when do, we, when do you use it most? When someone sneezes, God bless you. Or if, like, if you grew up in church when someone leaves, you say, oh, okay, God, God bless you. Or if you're a politician, at the end of your speech, you fake like you actually believe and say, God bless you and God bless America. Not all of them. There's, there's some good ones. Maybe. Uh, there's some good ones. There's some good ones. No, there is. There's good ones. It's good. God, God uses the foolish things of this world to humble the wise. Um, so... 
So look at Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Genesis 3, because of human rebellion, there's a curse. And the curse is symbolically represented by thorns and thistle. It's, it's going to be hard to to work the land to produce food to survive. Just several chapters later, Genesis 12, God chooses someone who's going to be the blessing people. And it's not God bless you. Blessing is the antithesis. It's the opposite of curse in Genesis. So the opposite of the curse is the blessing, and God has a reversing of the curse type of people, of people who will bless, not curse. And it first starts with Abraham, and then it it reaches its climax, its zenith point in Jesus, where Jesus is the son of Abraham, the son of David, and he is the one to bring about the ultimate blessing, a blessing that will reverse the curse. It's not just God bless you. It's a removing of hum human rebellion and wickedness. And this begins with first the incarnation of Jesus but it also continues to this day because God still has called a people to be a reversing of the curse type of people. And that's all of you. You pick up the mission of God to be a reversing of the curse type of people. God is using us, his church, his bride, his body, to reconcile all things back unto himself. And so we continue in this. So Joy to the World says that when Jesus came, the reversing of the curse began. It's the removing of thorns and thistles. And because of that, we need to let the blessings flow. Okay. Now, the hard question. Where we started. This is all a build-up to answer this question. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nation prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Now, you look around at the world. Man, it sure doesn't look like God is ruling and reigning. It doesn't look like he's kinging, king, I-N-G. And what some, some, some of us are tempted to do is, and there's truth to this, there's truth to this. We want to philosophically drop everything off on free will. Well, human beings are free and God never intervenes with, with human free will, so he is reigning, but he'll never, he'll never intervene because he doesn't want to violate free will and that's why there's evil and suffering. And th there, is, there is truth to that. There's a lot of truth to it. But the problem is scripture doesn't talk like, you know, God's, God's a gentleman and he never goes where he's not wanted and if you want to go down that path, he's not going to do any, anything to intervene. He just kind of stays up and, you know, he prays that one day things will get better. Like, no, Scripture says, look, God is in charge. He is sovereign. He's ruling and reigning right now. And guess what? God goes places where he's not welcomed. Because if he did it, no one in this room would be a Christian. He had to come into your life and show you the truth of his grace and oppose your sinful rebellion against him. So it's like, how is, how, how is all of this working? What's the inner logic of this? This is like a deep philosophical question. And joy to the world just proclaims scriptural truth, and we sing it, but it's like, how is this working? So you look around at the world, there's a lot of evil and suffering. 
And yes, there's free will, and that's a big part of it. But the question is, if God is king, and kings are about their, their kingdom business, expanding their kingdom, how is God implementing his kingdom rule, his kingdom rule and reign? How is he going about doing that? There's a, uh, there's a picture of uh, this happened in January of this year in China. It's called the Golden Lampstand Church. And this wasn't the only church that this has happened to. There's been several bigger churches that it happened to, but a lot of smaller ones. <clears throat> and uh, the Chinese government came in and just, they, they blew it up. They demolished this church. And they said it because it was built without perm- like proper permits. That was the reason given. Um, of course, all the Christians who were a part of it saying, hey, this has been here for eight years. We had the proper permits. Like, come on. And that's been the story for a lot of churches that have been demolished is that like, they go, oh, the cross is uh, wasn't filed to code. It's like, you immediately go like, you've been studying America too much, man. This permit stuff about not being filed to code. So they come in and use like a permit clause. Oh, you didn't build this, this ramp right, and so we need to demolish this church. But it clearly is a, a suppression of Christian value. And so the Golden Lampstand Church, people gave to build this massive Christian church that would reach the, the, the people in the area. It just gets demolished, blown up. It's like, is that how... that? This is the symbolism is powerful here. The cross is falling. Does it look like God's in charge? Does it look like He's ruling and reigning as the cross falls? And this is nothing compared to what the Chinese people went through in 1949 when Chairman Mao began the People's Republic of China. Um, I mean, the persecution was way worse. You read the history of that. The persecution against Christians was, was way worse then. So this is just, this is like nothing compared to that. Or here's something else. I've talked about this once before. This is called the fumi. There's a process of something called the fumier. And it was initiated and implemented in the time in Japan when shoguns kind of ruled. So starting roughly 1631, it went on for roughly 250 years. But... The, the Japanese shogun saw Christianity, Christianity as a direct threat to the Japanese way of life, and so Christianity was made illegal for 250 years. Severe persecution to Christians broke out. I'm, I'm talking severe. I mean, you're tortured and killed. There's a movie based upon a book. The guy who did the movie is Martin Scorsese. It's, don't recommend watching if you're weak to the stomach with stuff, but it's a movie based upon the book that documents what Christians went through in this period. It's called Silence, both the book and the movie. What was unique about Japanese persecution is that you have an an isolated island. You don't have like, think of like America. Like there's an expanse of land. It's very difficult to, to, to control what people believe, especially when there's like no technology. It's like, what are people doing? Like if you want to go in America into the woods someplace and have like a secret service, there's plenty of that to choose from. I mean, Japan's big, but it's still, it's isolated. And so, I mean, they went full out for 250 years to eradicate Christianity. People were tortured and killed. Um, One of the the most famous, there's a few really famous tortures that came out of this time period, but significant amount of people were slowly burned alive. Um, People would be crucified on the shore at low tide. The waves would come in over time. 
if you wanted to not face torture or death, you would step on this image called the fumi. And the fumi is just an image of Christ. It's an image of Christ. So you're being threatened with your life, and all you have to do is step on the image of Christ. Now, you got to understand, like, we're Westerners, so, so oftentimes we don't really understand the power of symbol. But in an Eastern culture, an honor and shame-based culture, some of you aren't raised in Western culture, you know what I'm talking about. It's like this, me, this stuff matters. That's like the ultimate blasphemy would be to put your foot on the image of Christ. And all you had to do to escape death and torture is put your foot on the image of Christ. And you're like, how are you ruling and reigning in the midst of this? How is God sovereign? Because, you know, there's a cheap version of sovereignty that Christians have sometimes. You know what I'm talking about? Where it's like, oh, God is sovereign, so, you know, even if bad things happen, they, they, you know, they, get, they get turned into good. And, and there's truth to that, but it's like, yeah, but what if you die? It's like, it's like what, if, what if your husband or wife gets killed? It's like, Man, how is all this stuff working? So the question that we wrestle with is the Bible says God is sovereign and he's currently ruling and reigning. But if you look around at how like the church is suffering and has suffered historically, you say, man, it doesn't look like you're, you're, you're not even in the fight, God. God, you're not even in the fight. We're here down on earth. We're in the fight. You're up in heaven where it's safe. And this, this is where you have to flip your understanding. Is God doesn't fight the way we fight. God doesn't fight the way earthly kings fight. He doesn't do that. That's, that's what Christmas, by the way, is all about. How does this new king who's going to be crowned king, how does he enter into creation as a baby under two peasants, Mary and Joseph, under the oppression of the Roman Empire. He enters in as the most vulnerable like, person you could be. What's more vulnerable than being a baby born to poor peasants and oppression of a wicked empire? He comes in vulnerability. And then it's, the story doesn't go, and then he, you know, climbs to the top of both the, the, the military ladder and the political ladder until he, no, no he dies. He's rejected and dies. But the scripture is saying all the way, this is the way God is fighting. Not by the sword. God, when he wants to destroy his enemies, he doesn't send in the missiles and the tanks. He blesses them. When God wants to fight the bad guys, he doesn't send in tanks. He sends in servants. Now, so, so those questions, like, how does God win when the Golden Lampstand Church is demolished? How did God win when, in 1949, Chairman Mao instituted his communist government, Christians were persecuted and killed? Well, in 1949, China had roughly 5 million Christians. You want to know how many Christians there are in China? Today, at minimum, 128 million and the faith is growing and exploding, and their faith makes a lot of our faith look ridiculous. What happened in Japan? 
for 250 years on that island. It's from 1631 for 250 years, Christianity was banned, outlawed, you're tortured and killed. When the ban was lifted 250 years later and religious freedom was given, 30,000 Christians came out of secret hiding and said, we've been practicing our faith since the beginning. Japan now has at minimum 2 million Christians. So how is God fighting? He doesn't bring the sword. He brings in the servants. And this is the most difficult thing for us because when we think about God ruling and reigning and being sovereign, we want him to rule and reign and be sovereign in a way that we like our earthly leaders to rule and reign and be sovereign, where you get absolute protection from all harm and danger. We want a spiritual missile defense system. Anything gets shot at us, they get blown down. That's not the way it works. God's good, but he's not safe. He's not safe. And so God sends missionaries into to, to places where they could die. You know, the American government doesn't like, you know, the American government, if you go into a country that there's some warnings, it tells you, like, you go to the webpage, don't go here. You might face difficult, like, it's not good for you to be an American here. Like God says, hey, man, I'm going to be with you. I can't promise you 100% safety, but guess what? I know what it's like to suffer, because that's also what incarnation and Christmas is all about. God didn't stay safe in heaven. He came down and he experienced the full weight of the human condition and the human experience, and he suffers alongside. And so when you read the New Testament, what's like the first things that happen after Jesus resurrects? He resurrects and he goes to sit at the right hand of the Father where he's now ruling and reigning as King of kings and Lord of lords. And you think, oh man, now the apostles are going to be super power charged and like they're just going to go and everyone's going to start believing nothing's going to stop them. They killed Jesus, he's resurrected, he's sovereign. And then what happens? Like first pages of the book of Acts. They preach, people get saved, and then the apostles get thrown into prison, tortured, and beaten. And it's like a pattern in, in the book of Acts. It's like preach the gospel, get beat up. Preach the gospel, get. Paul the apostle, he, that guy's crazy, man. He get beat up and they kick him out of the city and he come back into the same place. Because there's still people here that need to hear the gospel. And now what did, if you're familiar with your Bible, what did the first Christians say when they were beaten, tortured, and in prison? It's crazy. It's crazy. They praised God. They said, thank you for considering us worthy to suffer for your namesake because they knew that that meant God had chose them to fight his fight. But he doesn't fight with a sword. He fights with the servants who go in with good news, good news. And the first Christians praise God when they suffered because they had a different perspective. They knew that this life was short, really short. And whatever temporary sufferings you experience on this side of eternity, they are temporary. There is eternity. Because of that, they proclaimed again and again that they had joy. Not, you know, oftentimes Christians think that they have, they have joy and that means they don't have sufferings because God has blessed them so much. Read, when you read the Bible, it's never like, my, I have joy and, and there's no problems. It's always, I have joy in the midst of my suffering. 
It's, it's not a doing away. And sometimes God does bless you where he takes away suffering and he does the miraculous to remind you that he's good. But man, his promise is not that. His promise is that in the suffering, I know exactly what it's like to suffer. I've been there. I've been there and I'm with you. His promise is his presence. And so when you have that kind of understanding of things, it doesn't make like life all like happy, like, oh, I'm suffering. I want to be like apostle. I want to get beaten with rods and praise Jesus. No, it just means that you deal with the problems of life differently because you've been given a joy, a joy that's like an unspeakable joy, a joy that isn't temporary. It's based upon eternity and a joy that, that says, hey, I'm really glad when God came, he didn't show up to kill his enemies because guess what? If he did that, we all die. Because no one is just like, oh, Lord, I just serve you all the days. Of, like what happens in, like even in fantasy books or like, like a movie, like if you disobey the king, what does he do to you? You get punished, you get killed. Our king dies for us. And that's good news. That's really good news. And then you know that that joy isn't temporary. No matter what, whatever affliction you feel right now is temporary compared to the eternity that awaits you as an adopted son or daughter. So, what are we to do with all of this? We do what Psalm 98 tells us to do, and we do what joy to the world teaches us to do. What's the song tell us to do when you understand the king and his mission? You're supposed to be filled with joy and sing songs of thankfulness and gratitude. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. You, you sing and you rejoice and you say, God, yes, there's so much hurt and pain, but man, you, you've done something. You've done something. And then you allow your life to repeat the sounding joy to vibrate the, the original message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Doesn't mean everything will be easy. It makes a world of difference when you know that. Worship team's gonna come back up. I'm gonna pray and I'm just gonna ask you um, a question. Are you viewing life through the lens of the birth of Jesus and the cross? What I mean by that is when you're looking at suffering, when you're looking at problems in the world, when you're looking at not only your own problems, but the big problems out there, do you want the way of the cross or do you want the way of the sword? Because trust me, by nature, we all want the way of the sword. No one wants to bless their enemies. No one does. I want to kill my enemies. I want to kill someone when they cut me off on the freeway. <laughs> like, seriously, I'm just like, everywhere. You know what I mean? But if you're a Christian, it doesn't mean you just trust in the cross for salvation. You trust in the cross for salvation, and you see the cross as the way you fight the fight. As a servant, as one who's willing to suffer, as one who's willing to trust God in the midst of suffering, as a person who uses their their energy, their resources, their life to advance God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And so do you see the way of the cross or do you see the way of the sword?
As I pray, we're going to transition, and let's do what the songs tell us to do. The songs are telling us what to do. When you understand the gospel, when you know what Jesus has done for you, when you know the king has come to die for you, not to kill you, rejoice and celebrate. It's good news. So, Father, uh, we, we love you. We love your son. I know it's hard to trust you. It is difficult to trust you. It is difficult to to trust that you are sovereign and you are ruling and reigning. And it's a way that's counterintuitive, Lord, but help every single person in this room begin to trust you in the ways that you've called us to trust you. Be with all those around the world who are trusting you with their lives, literally. Bless them, be with them, remind them of your presence and remind them that there are Christians all around the world who join them in celebrating both in good times and bad times the announcement of the good king, your son Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen.